Hello. Welcome to Out of the Box Stories. My name is Allison Paradise, and I'm your host. It is my absolute pleasure to be speaking with Chris Murphy today. Chris and I have known each other for over a decade. When we first met in what Chris calls in this podcast, the industry. And what he means by the industry is that group of vendors that support scientific research. When we first met, I worked for a microscope company and Chris worked for a camera company. And then when Migraine Lab started, Chris began working for a company that made a mercury-free light source. And we started working together on mercury-free microscopy. The reason this was such an important topic back then is, and really still is such an important topic, is because many microscopes still use mercury bulbs or metal halide bulbs which contain mercury. And mercury is a highly toxic element and those bulbs are under pressure and they can explode, which is something you'll hear Chris reference in the podcast. We wanted to bring this idea to a wider audience that there was an alternative to using mercury in microscopes namely solid-state illuminators or LED illuminators. So during the podcast, you'll hear Chris reference a box that he was selling, and that is the mercury-free light source. He later left that position to work for a microscope company, Leica, where he is now the Life Sciences Market Development Manager. In this interview, you're going to hear us talk about three main things. First, how Chris is involved with Migraine Lab and the incredible contribution that he made to the organization in its early years. And then we're going to get a little bit more philosophical and Chris is going to talk about creativity, particularly in science, and how important and essential that really is. And then from there, the interview is going to move into the metaphysical where Chris starts to speak about sculpture and art. And it's at this point that I think it'll be obvious that you start to really hear the essence of this person. And that's what we're after in this podcast, getting out of the box. Who is the person we're speaking with and what beautiful, amazing things are they able to share with the world? So without further ado, this is the interview with Chris Murphy. I am so excited today that Chris Murphy is with us. Chris, I haven't seen you in a very long time. Yeah, it's very good to see you, Allison. Very good to see you. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for being here. It is my pleasure and an honor. Thank you. I thought it would be interesting to start at the beginning of how we know each other to set the stage for why you're here, maybe. Because actually, I think a lot of people don't know you or know your name, even though thousands and thousands of people who are part of the Migraine Lab community do know you. <laughs> yes, the, the, secret, the secret is out. I'm very happy to say that for 12 years, I've been able to know you and experience the way that you disrupt things and... Uh, was really excited at the opportunity to do something different with you when I myself, I had worked for a company for a little while 
and the product itself did not make me very excited. And I was transitioning to a different product that got me a little bit more excited just because of the nature of my brain and needing a little extra motivation. And because that product was very sustainable compared to its alternatives, the synergy between the pivot you took in your career, in your life, and my pivot coalesced in a really fun way that is amazing to see bloom the way it has. You said that so beautifully. For what I would have said, we met and you amplified everything that I was doing. Just to a degree that looking back on it, I think without your help, this never would have gotten off the ground. See, that's beautiful too, because I don't work without getting that extra little input, right? I fizzle. I have ADD. I'm, I'm bored if it doesn't start to pop. So beautiful compliment we ended up being. That worked out very well. Would you mind sharing with people, from your perspective, the ways that you worked with the organization in the early years? Yeah, certainly. So I can, uh, I can say without a doubt that my time spent in the lab as a bit of an outsider, I was kind of shocked what I stepped into, the environment, the culture of, of the lab. And I did take the opportunity to join the industry at an entry point that I could achieve and immediately started to feel this desire to do more than just move boxes from a factory to a laboratory. And then I started to experience this very interesting thing that was happening where new technology was coming along, but just the fact that it was a little bit better, incrementally better, wasn't enough. So I felt like there was only a part of the story being told from the product side, which is where I came at it from. And that part of it was that it is better, it's more stable, it's cooler, which is helpful for the scientist sitting right next to this big, bright light source. And when the technology itself meant so much to me, I was excited to see that the impact was bigger. There was a bigger change that was happening that would help reduce some really gnarly things from an entire supply chain if we could more efficiently transition researchers into this new tech. So it was a very tangible thing for me. You know, I was paid to do it and I fed my children and started my family. But at the end of the day, I wasn't motivated to wake up every day just for that. And I found this really beautiful opportunity to take experience I had with household vacuum in a blown bulb, you know, terrible, uh, terrible, terrible thing to do in a lab and just vacuum up this blown bulb. <laughs> terrible, terrible. Um, and take that pain that I felt and actually use it to motivate me into finding ways of helping other people see that. And I think My Green Lab ended up becoming a bit of a platform for the discussion, which is so important, is that place to talk about it and the people to spend the energy to justify it and give that little extra value, that currency we don't talk about that is the impact. You downplay so much what you contributed. So I'm going to share from my perspective, which is that from the very first conference that we went to, the California Higher Education Sustainability Conference, 
Remember that? Yeah, I remember that. Week two of Migraine Lab. Hang on a second. Weren't you wearing a shirt big enough for half of the state of California to fit in? <laughs> if I remember correctly, <laughs> you could have jumped out into the ocean with a string attached and floated away. So funny. I went I went to try to get a shirt my size when it started and they said, Oh no, we'll have plenty of shirts for when it's time for you to volunteer. Yeah, and I'm wearing a shirt that's down to my knee. <laughs> <laughs> I look like a child in their parents' clothing. And and you your presence gave me so much courage because in one of the sessions they were talking about I don't know if you remember this, they were talking about how much energy labs consume. And everybody's saying, well, labs use so much energy, but there's nothing we can do about it because they're scientists and we want to make, we don't want to disrupt the science. And I'm listening to this over and over again, and I'm just the timekeeper for the session. But finally, I thought, this is silly. Of course we can do something about it. So I stand up in this, wearing this ridiculous outfit, you know, the sleeves down to my elbow. <laughs> and I say, I run a nonprofit that helps labs reduce energy consumption. And I had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> I didn't know how to do that. But I figured we could work it out. And your presence, it's hard to explain this, but it sort of strengthened me in a way that I, when I, it emboldened me. That's the word I'm looking for. It emboldened me that I felt, well, yeah, this is possible. And it's certainly possible with you there. And then you set up all of these talks all over the place for me to come and speak to the reduction of mercury in labs and talk about energy consumption in laboratories. And then every conference we had, that's how, if you're listening, that's how you might know Chris. Because if you ever went to the booth at CellBio, at Neuroscience, even maybe ACS, Chris was the one at the booth. He took time off PTO to come and help at the booth and if you went to the booth you would know that without him there's no way that booth would have operated at all it absolutely needed you and I'm just I'm so grateful because looking back I mean what I said I don't know how this would have gotten off the ground because I was running but you were like the wind that lifted me up that's super kind of you I think it's funny. I, I spoke to a few labs that met us at those conferences, like later in really? my career. Yeah, I've run across them. <laughs> and they're like, you're so relaxed now. And I'm like, you have no idea how <laughs> crazy exhausting that was because the demand wasn't something we had to generate. The people wanted to know and hear and, and talk to us about it. And it was every extra little bit of energy we had in the end and we would slump off in the evenings and just you know, sleep for 12 hours that's so funny we just wouldn't even speak we'd just be staring good good preparation for any other challenges you may have in life it's true so true so this podcast is about breaking the mold of things and there are two things in particular that have always really impressed me about you that I thought would be fun to share if you're open to sharing them with other people. Yeah, I will, I will bring my, my best self if I can. 
<laughs> I'm a little scared. <laughs> right. I should say, Chris has no idea what I'm going to ask him. This this is meant to be as authentic as possible. So there's no preparation here. It's all just in the moment. The first one is something that you referenced just a few minutes ago, which is when you first went into a lab. And that story about how you ended up working in a lab, to me, is is triumphant. It's amazing. You went from doing these odd jobs to getting a job in a national lab as a microscopist in one of the most well-known microscopy labs in the country, in spite of having no formal science education and, and no college degree. And then from there, you took that and really catapulted yourself into being one of the leaders in the microscopy space in the industry. It's so inspiring. Would you be open to sharing that story? Yeah. Yeah, I don't mind. Um, today's actually the anniversary of the day I left the lab and flew to uh, corporate headquarters to interview for a job in the industry 12 <laughs> years ago. This, this brain in between my ears somehow thought that was a great idea. And uh, was very fortunate it was correct. But three years before that, I uh, applied for a job as a science writer as a sorely underqualified <laughs> candidate. And uh, But for the vision and the strategy of employment for my, um, my boss in the lab, I got hired as a microscopist in a national lab doing full-blown research as a gentleman who had studied art and poetry in college and didn't finish because I worked too many jobs to pay my bills to be able to give it the focus it deserved. And I, I just am blown away at the opportunities that have come from that little bit of privilege that I think I was able to snag a hold of. And I... I think about it now, 15 years in my past, I stumbled in, literally stumbled in, slightly hung over to a job interview for a science writer. And my long hair, the sunglasses that I used to push my hair back out of my face as I decided to shake <laughs> this man's hand and ask for a job was, it's a scene. It's, it <laughs> is too much and I can't, it's hard to swallow. But I, uh, I learned within a few moments of sitting down and talking to this gentleman that he had hired the individual who walked out right before I did. I made eye contact with who he made an offer to, and he told me right away. And I, in that moment, my demeanor changed, and I, I think, fell into myself a bit and relaxed. And as he started asking questions, I kind of perked up a bit because I realized that there's something else going on and I think I was raised to be sensitive to those little extra things that are happening and through a half hour conversation he offered me a job and he said do you mind washing glassware and reading some textbooks and I said if it pays enough for my rent no sir I don't mind at all <laughs> and uh yeah, and I, I literally just jumped in and was like, all right, great. So I started reading biology books and 
all these incredible physics books on the optics, then my brain took to it and I, I was able to be quite successful in the lab without a proper scientific training, really because of the team that I was with and the, the vision for that one person who had the power to hire or deny somebody like me. And what were you doing right before? I had a, I had a series of jobs working in either radio or food, <laughs> waiting tables, making pizzas. I was uh, hired as a dishwasher at a pizza place and had worked up to a manager in a few years. And uh, at the time had quit on April 20th, which is... <laughs> I guess 15 years ago, recently from us recording here on 429, um, quit my job at the pizza place to push myself to do something bigger because I had lost a lot of my um, drive. And my drive is, you know, it's something if you're aware of your own drive, when it's missing, you're also acutely aware that it's missing. And I couldn't stand it. Like I was paying rent okay. I had enough money to enjoy a beverage, an adult beverage. I was I was doing just well enough that I was like, you know, this could last. You could do this forever. But I couldn't get out of bed. I was struggling. And when I found out that it was because of what I was doing with my time, it made it really easy to just cut it off and make a big jump and try ambitiously, aggressively to put myself into a position that had a bit of a impact rather than feeding the doctors that save lives. Maybe I could try to do something a little bit more on point and get a more direct impact on, on making the world better. It's really hard for me to articulate the, the feeling that I have when you talk about this, because it takes so much courage to do what you did. I mean, you talk about it as if it's just nothing, but you, you completely turned your life around because you recognized that something needed to change, and that is not easy. I think I had a decision that I could make, and it was a very binary decision, and it was that sustain self and exist, think deep thoughts, maybe somebody reads one day. As a poet, that was my my idea. I'm saving my energy every day because the output is instead these great thoughts that I have, these really beautiful words that I can string together. But that didn't, I mean, it wasn't enough, actually. Like it itself, I was like, well, that's as hollow as a hollow man can be. And in the end, I ended up just thinking myself into a conundrum where I had no other choice. And I think that's the corner we should, we should proactively <laughs> back ourselves into occasionally because uh -huh. it it taps the edge a little bit and says okay I hear you and I don't need you I'm gonna step up I'm gonna excite myself in a way that I haven't been excited in a long time and look out for the shine because it what really was as soon as my brain was plugged into a path that I could see tangible output from my energy it isn't comparable to who I was before. And it's a nudge. It's such a small little pivot, I think, for so many people. And it's very easy to forget that it is 
a personal choice in a dark corner when you don't have a lot of choices. And one good choice ends up feeding the entire beast that is your life in the end. <laughs> so I was lucky. I was lucky. And there was people that helped me. And there was privilege that, you know, was that wind in my sail for sure that I've become very, very aware of and appreciative. But my mom always said to put yourself in a position to take advantage of good luck. And in the end, I think that very small difference is the difference. It's we are we are splitting hairs between me and parallel universe me who is still managing a pizza place, hiring and firing high school kids, feeding <laughs> feeding doctors and lawyers who are doing important things and you know going to sleep scribbling a few deep thoughts that don't have the the meat on the bones that are really required for for what I expect of myself when I'm 99 and on my fourth liver <laughs> provided <laughs> by a pig <laughs> thanks to science that somebody else did because I fed them some kind of tasty pizza <laughs> I'm so glad we're in this timeline. <laughs> yeah, this time I have to say, as the one experiencing it, this is this is the timeline to be in. <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> the way you talk about being backed into a corner fits really nicely with the imagery for this podcast about being in a box, because that is kind of it. That's when you are aware that you're in one is when you hit that corner, and then you go, "Oh, brilliant! Oh, wait, hold on!" And if I rock a bit more. I can probably just knock this whole thing over. <laughs> knock it right off the shelf. Mm -hmm. Right? If, you're, if you've got the courage, that's, that's what happens. I mean, that's what you did. You hit a corner and you knock that thing right off the shelf. Yeah, yeah. Split it wide open. That's right. I think I heard whispers from people outside the box. And they were like, hey, <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Rock the box. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be all right. Trademark. <laughs> you've worked with thousands and thousands of scientists and you've been there to witness those moments of breakthroughs and those moments where people are really struggling they've been working on a project for years and just somehow can't seem to see a path through you've been witness to some incredible resiliency and creativity. This leads into the next question I had or the, the other facet of you that I find so, so beautiful. And that is the art, the art and the poetry. So how does that play into your life now? That is a very good question. I would, uh, yeah, you know, without it, I would not be here, undoubtedly. The best luck, the most charisma, if you subtract the creativity from that, it doesn't matter the opportunity that you get. It is going to be more difficult than the people around you are willing to absorb. <laughs> um, so I would say that the the 
training that my art teachers and my English teachers gave me as we were studying these incredible examples while also honing the tools to produce those sorts of thoughts and to capture it, that's, that's muscle in a way that is highly neglected in my experience when I engage with the broad, the broad world that I get to. You know, folks like you and I, we meet thousands of people a year and it enables us to appreciate that nuance of the person who's a scientist, but also more creative than Picasso. Mm -hmm. And they exist. Yeah. They don't, they may not paint, they may not sculpt, but when you see a protocol or you see a pivot after an observation that a scientist is make, I geek out. Like, I mean, (laughs) I lose my mind. I will, and it's embarrassing, and I, it's embarrassing. It's, I find myself red in the face, but I see what they did. I see the pivot. I understand what it took to think through what they saw and where to go next. It's, it's one of the best things about our jobs, you know? <laughs> you go into a thousand labs a year, and you talk to these people, and then sometimes, sometimes we get the pleasure of multiple years of experiencing their research, their triumphs, we help them overcome something, right? Sometimes they think an insanely awesome pivot. And I am in the immediate throes of this young man of myself studying art. And it's the same part of my brain that's excited. The same little bit of me that's like engaged and turned on is fully plugged in. And it has nothing to do with mitochondria being the powerhouse of the cell (laughs) or chlorophyll being a bit boring to learn in school. But it had everything to do with this human being very faithfully observing the reaction to some stimulus, having their idea of what would happen be wrong, right? Wrong. Mm -hmm. Bold face wrong. And instead of crying, which I could easily do, or giving up or pivoting or falsifying data. Mm -hmm. All of those pressures aside, they chose a creative approach that enabled them to move forward in a way that, in my experience, these people are very successful. They publish astounding publications. It's, that's me. Like, that's, that's who I was raised to be. And granted, I can't write out the formula for certain types of chemical reactions, but I can look at the data with the best of them and see a path forward that is unique, innovative. And with that brain applied to science, we get discoveries, we get cures, it's great. So it's, it's about balance to me. The uh, concept of a Renaissance man was super cool as a kid. Mm-hmm. I think I blame Danny DeVito. Oh, God. This is a weird... What? (laughs) That that warrants explanation. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I don't want to belittle the origin story here. Um, But it was a movie that he did, Renaissance Man, Danny DeVito. He, like, helped out these kids that were having a hard time with, like, their... Oh, God, I got to watch it again. It was fantastic. (laughs) It was, like, the, uh, the kids in basic training that couldn't pass the the paper test and he was helping them and he did it through Shakespeare and this concept of like really broadening the way they appreciate the brain they have as an approach to overcoming a academic challenge 
right? Hmm. It's a small thing, but it was impactful because of the age I was. And I think Mm -hmm. at the time, I think I was allowed to start drinking Coca-Cola. So I had probably a little caffeine high as I was watching it. And I took it to heart because I was like, wow, I am who I am. And I am struggling in school. And it's not because I am dumb, but rather because I am a slight misfit for the structure that they're applying. But grades are important to me. I want to do well, right? I want to make my mom proud. So I was able to leverage Danny DeVito as this instructor in this movie and looked into it and found that, you know, Da Vinci and me, we have a lot in common. Like there's a lot about his brain I see in myself. When I see writings of Michelangelo, they resonate. I understand. When I think about the way I see the world, it is nuanced, but valuable. And when applied with intention, I've been able to help in any way I can. When I just focus a little bit and apply that creativity to resolve issues within whatever organization or situation I find myself. And that's, that's muscle that was built by art teachers talking about thin, thick, light, dark lines, you know, shadows, the way they cast, talking about your eye and how important your eye is to what you produce as an artist. In a lot of cases, It has nothing to do with your strength in your hand and how many times you've drawn something. It has more to do with the way you see it. And I was emboldened with that. You know, it's almost impossible to respond to what you just said because it's so perfect. It just, I'm going to leave that as as a statement of perfection. (sighs) And I'm going to ask some questions about, I have two questions. First, What about Da Vinci and Michelangelo do you see in yourself? We'll start with that one. So from, you know, Michelangelo handing him a stone that, you know, several sculptors said they wouldn't take it. Mm -hmm. Like that attitude is powerful to me. That, you know what? It isn't just that I'm going to make an amazing sculpture. I'm going to do it out of something you said couldn't be sculpted, right? That is crazy. Plus, it was my favorite Ninja Turtle. (laughs) I completely was sucked in by the Ninja Turtles and then bloomed within my understanding of the actual person. Was good at one thing, and he did that one thing really well. And I think we would have a different appreciation for Da Vinci if he did apply his brain in a modern society's focused, get in this spot, do this role, Do it exactly how we tell you. He will have been great. I believe that. Intelligence is a powerful thing. But we wouldn't know him. We wouldn't say Da Vinci. It wouldn't sit in the same way in our minds if he ultimately allowed himself to be shuffled into some shuffled into some generic role. It really was that he spread his wings in a in a fun, punny way and started to look more broadly at things. It was architecture and art. It was the human form from a scientific observation perspective manifest in art, right? Making that bridge between these things we've been told are different 
he saw it as one. And that is my brain. Like I refuse to see the difference and I will giggle and laugh and point at people who argue that these are two binary exclusive <laughs> buckets. That's crazy. That's crazy. And the best of the best, I think, is that within that understanding of, of that reality, like appreciation of it is great, but you still have to put the work in to make the masterpiece. And I think that a lot of people that tiptoe the line into these deep, deep thoughts about these things, there's another little corner that you accidentally back into about whether or not it matters for everyone, whether it's just something you go through in a process that makes you into who you are going to be, which is okay, but it's significantly different than applying yourself to society and to humankind in a way that would have that echo and that resonance that I think is really, really exciting and, and motivates me. I am not well motivated by my own gains. <laughs> I like the smiles and the glimmer of hope that I can see cast on other faces. Thank goodness. <laughs> You're such an inspiration. It's hard to even... Okay. The sculpture. Going back to the sculpture, you had mentioned that you find that same beauty in a protocol that gets shifted as you do when you're sculpting something. And I would love to hear you talk about a sculpture that went through that shift for you. Like hearing you describe when you're creating something. What is that like for you? Oh, that is fantastic. That is such a good question, right? I think it's easier to see it in a science lab, right? It's a, it can be abstract in a painting because it's hidden under layers. Mm -hmm. But with sculpture, you can choose to take on clay, add more clay, undo, Control Z, that's an option for some 3D art. And I love it sometimes. <laughs> if I've uh, leaned into a bottle of bourbon on a Friday night, clay is the right medium. <laughs> <laughs> but I was brought up a stone carver, you know? I was young when I was handed a chisel and a hammer and a rock, stared at it and made something. And it is different to selectively remove something with no going back. There's a real requirement for intent that is a part of the art when it's done, in my mind. When I look at a stone carving, there's this uh, gentleman, Iago, I've been looking at lately. He's this Italian stone carver. He does the most beautiful, realistic. I've never seen such a thing. It's mind boggling. I have no idea what he thinks, what he says, because I haven't translated anything on Instagram. However, I just stare at these pieces of art that he has and I can appreciate how well he captures somebody. You know, it looks like what he's trying to sculpt. I have always taken a surrealist approach, in which case you're carving and making choices in the moment. 
And that's very difficult. That's much more of a, a faith in your on the fly creativity. So that was muscle that I built forever. Like I've been from the get go, I was always doing these surrealist pieces of art. So I've got this, actually it's sitting behind me, this Brazilian sculpture, uh, it's, excuse me, it's Brazilian soapstone that was the most affordable stone I could buy in high school. You know, poor white boy had to, had to get what I could afford. What you sacrifice in that quality is actually these incredible mineral faults that go through it, these sandy bits. So the, the stone literally was collapsing under my idea. I was carving and there was delineated parts that were just flopping off, these parallel sheets. So I don't know if any geologists are listening, but this stone is not what you want to carve. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is take something that is terrible, absolutely terrible for what you want to do. And now your grade depends on it. You want an A in this class? You got to make an amazing sculpture. It was terrible. But I was able to calm myself after the first break and further call myself after that second break. The third break, I had my chisel and my hammer fully cocked, ready to just destroy this rock. I was done <laughs> mentally as a 17-year-old, full hormone 17-year-old. I'm destroying this. Oh, my God. And I, it was a split second backed into that corner that I ended up calming myself and looking at what had happened and realized that the composition of the piece was incomplete in my mind until those pieces started falling apart. And it was the parallel, accidental, I can't believe this is happening, shattering of this boulder that ended up making the piece to me such an incredible keystone to my development as an artist that young. It was, uh, it was terrible. I mean, you don't wish it for your children. Like, I don't wish this on anyone, <laughs> but I'm here for it. If you go through it and you come out the other side, like, I know what it's about. I've been there and you are better for it. But please don't make my children go through it. Let them give me a scratch and sniff way to learn this without, without the pain. <laughs> well, you can't. That's the thing. The struggle's where you grow. There's no scratch and sniff. Damn it. No, no. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta struggle to grow. That, the way you described that as you're, as you were speaking, made me think. Well, that's life, isn't it? You're handed something, and you have an idea of what it's supposed to look like, but then things happen. Things crumble, and the more calm you can be in the space and go, okay. So now what? Instead of trying to hold on to the pieces that are falling away and going, no, 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 I needed you. I thought you had to be part of this. You're part of the plan. <laughs> and that's when you get stuck. It's like as soon as you go to Google glue, you should probably just stop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's fun. Just let it fall away. It's such a beautiful metaphor for existence. Because yes, that's it. Everything does fall apart. And... That's that's required for us to grow. If everything were super simple, how would we ever grow? And you would be bored. 
by your own admission. <laughs> or worse. I mean, like we, I, I joke about it and I shouldn't, but the end of the day, when you take away that little glimmer of light from somebody, it's worse than just washing dishes in a restaurant for the rest of their life. So like we lose a lot of these people every year who just say, you know what? Well then I'll take, I'll take the check please. Yeah. And that was, I mean, it was that corner where you're looking at it and you're like, I can be or not. And Shakespeare hit me square in the face. And to be is great if you want to be what you can be. So enabling that from people is, I think, you know, that's our, that's our tragic flaw as a society is it takes a little bit of luck and it's exceptional for people like us to be successful. And I think that's gonna be the exciting thing to watch as the next generations take over is to see how many folks we would have lost that the net can pick up and not just catch those fish, but really see them mature and, and grow into amazing, amazing people. Mm -hmm. To support them thriving. Thriving. Not, as you said, survive, just surviving. Ah, it's, ah, it's wonderful. With the last few minutes that we have left, in reflecting on, on you, on your essence, on who you are, is there something that's still hidden that wants to be brought to light? Oh my goodness gracious. Oh, that is a good question. That, that is a good question. I think these things of me, I have selectively shared with people and everybody got a little bit of something, a little bit here, a little bit there. These are things I thought were the parts of me that became, I don't know, it's a category I would describe as in spite of, right? Mm -hmm. I was successful in spite of these things and these things are a core part of me. Mm -hmm. So rather than digesting and understanding the impact of these things and how they've made me successful and telling that story for myself, I think I've spent my career slipping through and looking for everybody to just, you know, that one right person who's going to give me a chance to do well in spite of the fact that I have this very unique background. And as I've gotten deeply, I mean, thankfully, I work for a company that takes diversity and inclusion very seriously and they want to have a conversation around what privilege looks like and how it manifests in your career. All of those things have made me realize first, like I am fortunate, I am lucky. All these things that have happened, happened at a time where I could do what I did, right? Mm -hmm. 10 years earlier, 10 years later, it's a completely different situation. Mm -hmm. There's a very short lens of time on company cultures and I honestly believe that for the first time, that box could be opened a bit and shining a bit of light on myself and appreciation for these weird nuances would inspire employers, upper management folks to make unique choices when they're looking at filling roles, right? 
it's easy, I think, to plug in an algorithm that says if they don't have these boxes checked, kick it out. I want to look at the top five. Mm -hmm. I think that's dangerous because I'm in that 95% that you'll never see if you're waiting to see that college degree checkbox. And even further, I have made great impacts on every organization I've been in. So it isn't about, it's not a charity thing. We're talking about giving equal opportunity to a unique input into your organization. And that's a big pivot for me. It doesn't seem like it, but that is, I've spent my whole life actually working the other way, talking to individuals, saying, raise your hand, try hard. That has been exhausting. (laughs) And I've got a few great, success stories of these really cool people I've met over the years that I've helped and I've been, I've been that that driving, motivating guide. And I wouldn't change any of that. However, the impact of taking that conversation one layer higher and talking to the folks making choices about who's going to be hired, promoted, accelerated, invested in, I think that's the the big thing that should scare corporate America for the next 10 years because I'm coming for you. <laughs> I'm on the hiring panels. I am making choices with you. And we are. I am looking for a creative spark. I'm looking for innovation and something unique. And when I see it, I am persuasive. But one person's never going to do it. We need a thousand decision makers and a thousand corporations widening the lens that they look at people and realize that the potential is there and Mm -hmm. better to be tapped by you than your competitors. Because if you don't hire them, somebody else is going (laughs) to. I didn't realize you were doing this and it's from, from this perspective, so meaningful because it's also you owning that part of you and not denying it anymore because I knew about your background but other people didn't necessarily know and you would present as if you had a I mean not not that you were lying to people but because you're so knowledgeable people would just assume you have a PhD and it just wouldn't be something that was discussed and the fact that you are so open about it now is a huge shift in you and your acceptance of yourself is really, really something. Yeah, I think being sensitive to the reactions people had when they found out that I wasn't very highly degreed. It was, um, I felt like I was leaving a little bit on the table because that assumption that I had a degree was great when I was young and it was helping me in my career. But as I've gotten older, I've realized that's actually headwind for others. So I've got to shed that skin. I got to I got to step out of it. Every moment. Every moment you're exemplifying that idea of okay, this is uncomfortable, but I need to make a change and I'm going to do something different. Thank you. Thank you for being on this and for sharing your story. I told you it was an honor. I meant it. I meant it. It's an honor for me to speak with you. Okay, then. It's like, I don't know how to end that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to call my therapist and cancel this week's session and say, you know, (laughs) I took care of it. It's all good. Actually, next week, I'm good. I'm good. (laughs) 
I'll see you. I'll see you late May. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, kids. See your therapist. <laughs> this is very powerful and very meaningful. Thank you. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Allison. Thanks for being you. Thank you. I try every day. <laughs> That's the best. <laughs> what was our trademark about the box? We were trying to knock the box. What did we say? There was something clever. That should be how we close. Oh, that's so funny. Rock the box, don't rock the box, baby. Rock the box, don't rock, <laughs> I like rock that. the rock box, the box over. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. That needs to be the end. Okay, so we'll just sing that as the end. We're adults. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> no. Oh, my God. Rock the box, rock the box don't rock, rock the box, box baby. Rock, rock the, the box, box, knock the box over. Rock the box. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye.